Alright, if you want to make your way back into the sanctuary and toward your seats. In our, in our laying out and planning of, uh, of the Bible initiative over the course of this year, we, uh, we gave ourselves exactly one week for the entire book of Romans, which means I gave myself exactly 30 minutes to do a sermon over the book of Romans, which is entirely impossible. Um, but you're third service, so you can stay here as long as, <laughs> as, long as I want, I guess. Um, no, I'm kidding. We're going we're gonna to work out of Romans chapter 12 today. So if you have a Bible and you want to go ahead and open up uh, to there, we're going to be in verses 9 through 12. Uh, while you kind of get situated and we get ready to go, uh, let's, let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to come and to worship you. Uh, God, to spend time in your word. God, in your presence and fellowship with one another. Lord, I pray that all of those things are honoring and glorifying to you. God, I pray that your spirit would be here this morning. Take the words uh, of scripture, take words of truth, God, and and just impress them into our hearts. Lord, would you reveal to us uh, something deeper of the truth of the gospel today, God, than maybe we came in understanding. Lord, would you show us what it looks like to live in light of the gospel? God, would you Maybe reveal the truth of your son, Jesus, to us for the very first time here this morning. Uh, God, we trust your spirit to work. Uh, God, we pray that our time together would be uh, glorifying and honoring to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to start this morning and talk about epistles in general for uh, just a couple of minutes here. And I think if, if you're someone who has a regular time of Bible reading, of, of Bible study in your life, whether that's in the morning or at night or sometime during the day, I think you'll resonate with the fact that most of us tend to drift toward the New Testament in our reading of Scripture. It's not necessarily something that we're doing intentionally. I think it just happens because if we're being you know, honest and candid with one another, it seems the easiest to grasp. And so because it seems the easiest to grasp, we just kind of land and situate ourselves there the majority of the time. And hear me say, there's nothing wrong with spending a lot of your time, your quiet times or devotional times in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with that. But even within the New Testament, uh, I think we're typically drawn toward uh, a number of epistles, the nature of some sections of even the New Testament make it so that we probably don't just choose to spend a lot of time reading there. Revelation, confusing. We probably don't just choose to spend a lot of time reading the book of Revelation. Hebrews can be a little bit confusing, so we likely wouldn't choose that either. What's most likely is that we situate ourselves very frequently in the epistles of Paul, the letters that Paul Wrote. And we do that because they're applicable. We can take sentences, love one another, and just, okay, that I, seems like I can grasp that. I don't have to do a ton of work to understand uh, what those few words mean, and I can apply them to my life and then kind of try to run with that. We're looking for ease of reading, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. 
we might choose to situate ourselves in the Gospels frequently because they're the story of Jesus and they seem the most interesting to us. That could be a possibility for you too. We've been using this kind of chart over the course of the year that puts various sections of Scripture into some similar categories. In the Old Testament, Genesis all the way through Malachi, was the anticipation of Christ, of a Savior. Everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to the Messiah who would come and redeem humanity, that being Jesus Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the manifestation of that Savior, of that Messiah. They're the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection of his ministry. And then Acts is the early church's proclamation of that gospel message in these outwardly radiating circles that move further and further and further away from Jerusalem. And then beginning in Romans and working all the way up until Revelation, we have the epistles. They are the explanation of what it means to live in light of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the message that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and that by faith in him, we can have forgiveness from our sin. Those are just chock full of practical insight into what it means to live in response to the work of Jesus on the cross. There are no doubt, no matter which one of the epistles you would pick up, there are some things that can be hard to wrestle with and to work with. You know, sometimes the grammar is difficult or the words are lofty, or at times Paul will use an entire sentence that should have been like three paragraphs worth of information, and it feels like this run-on that's never going to end, and there's some work involved. But on the whole, the epistles give us seemingly the most direct application to our life, and so what happens is that there is a situation in life that's kind of forced upon us. We've got circumstances in life that are difficult, and we're trying to figure out how to work our way through them or they're emotionally taxing, and we're looking for some sort of comfort. And so if you're someone who grew up in church or you grew up around Scripture, oftentimes we're drawn to the Bible as the means to navigate those things, which is wonderful. But there's one problem. We go in looking for the quickest and the easiest thing that we can just take and apply to ourselves as if the Bible is like a self-help manual. The Bible's not a self-help book. It's a self-revealing book. By that, I mean that when we read Scripture, it's self-revealing and that God, the inspirer of all Scriptures, reveals the truth about Himself. And that as we are reading, we see revealed the truth about ourselves as well. You never see yourself more clearly than when you see yourself in light of the truth of Scripture. That is the clearest depiction of, of who you are, of who I am, of who humanity collectively is. Maybe even more so than coming to the Bible as a self-help book, some of us want to weaponize it and go to it as an other's help book. You know what I'm talking about. You get in an argument with your spouse, you feel like they're being particularly impatient, and you think to yourself, there's a proverb about that. And so you go digging through proverbs, and you find the one you want, and you write them a little note. And it's somewhat apologetic, but really it's just got, it was a vehicle to get the proverb on the bottom of the note so that they would read it and get right. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've got an interaction with your child. They're being particularly disobedient and it's frustrating to you. And you think to yourself, there's somewhere in here that says something about children honoring their parents. I'm going to march up to that bedroom because I just sent them there and I'm going to poke my head in 
check on them, but really just share that they should honor and obey me. And we kind of weaponize the Bible in that way a little bit. The issue is that in both of those, whether it's a self-help kind of situation or others help situation, we're approaching scripture as if its primary task is behavior modification. And that's not the case. In fact, when we read the epistles, maybe more so than any other section of scripture, maybe pair that with like Proverbs, it feels like the Bible could be mostly about behavior modification. Like maybe this is just about correcting some of my behavior. That's not the case. The Bible is a self-revealing book. It is the ultimate and definitive means by which God reveals himself. It tells us that God is holy and righteous and just, that he's omnipotent and omniscient and he's sovereign or he's in control of all things. It also tells us that he is love, that central to who God is in his character, he is love, but he also acts in loving ways. We see that in the fact that he's forgiving and merciful and gracious and kind and so on. The Bible lays out for us that in all of his ways, God is perfect, beginning to end, Genesis through Revelation. God is revealing himself, and in so doing, he also reveals his purposes and his work. And so that's why, over the course of the year, we've said many times that the Bible is the story of God redeeming humanity from their sin. By its very nature, the Bible tells us about God. He's revealing himself. Along the way of showing us exactly how he's gone about purchasing the redemption of humanity from their sin. But the Bible also tells us about us because the Bible is the ultimate and definitive means of revealing humanity. So, what does the Bible say about who humanity is? Well, at its core, the message about humanity is that we are broken, that sin, not so much a behavior, is something that lies deep inside every human that we're marked by the presence of the condition of sin. Scripture also tells us that we're intentionally created and intimately and infinitely loved by God, that we cannot save ourselves, that we need a Savior. This means that you come to the Bible not primarily looking for a means of self-help or behavior modification, but you come to the Bible looking into a mirror. A mirror that reflects the truth about who you are, while showing you the beauty of who God is. That is what scripture does. And so we're going to look at this in Romans. And we could have done this type of message in any other epistle, but I chose Romans for a specific reason. That's because it is undoubtedly uh, the longest, most detailed explanation of the gospel that the New Testament gives. Paul, the author, he writes it before he's ever even been to Rome. And there's not nearly enough time for me to cover even a fraction of what the book of Romans has to say doctrinally or theologically. Paul addresses basically all the main foundational beliefs that are core to Christianity. He talks about the universal sin and separation that humanity has from God, about humanity's inability to achieve our own salvation. It's He talks about justification through Christ's work on the cross and salvation by grace through faith. He gives a long, laid out, beautiful explanation of the equally available to all nature of Jesus' work on the cross. He 
gives a detailed description of God's righteousness and holiness. He talks about our worship and our sanctification and on and on. These are topics we've hit on repeatedly throughout the year, but in Romans you get them in one very dense and clear and logically laid out letter, beginning to end. And since we can't deal entirely with all of that or even partially with any one piece of that, what I want to do this morning in light of the last 10 months of walking through Scripture and in light of kind of where we are currently, I want us to just focus on one very specific thing. And it has to do with how we view the commands of Scripture. Here it is. It's that obedience to the commands of Scripture is rooted in a joyful understanding and acceptance of the grace of God in the work of Jesus. That we come to an epistle, we see these descriptions of what it means to be a Christian, of how a Christian is supposed to live, and our obedience to those descriptions, to those commands, is rooted in a joyful understanding and acceptance of the gospel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read Romans 12, 9 to 21. It is just a rapid-fire list of Paul kind of unloading all of these different things that should mark the behavior and the lifestyle of someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So starting in verse 9 of Romans 12, it says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you just took that whole list in some total, the initial thought would be, wow, that's a lot of commands. Where do I even start with that? And so what I want us to do first this morning is kind of break this into some pieces. Paul has these in some logical categories, if you will. And so let's see the way they fit together. Here's a chart of all of them on one. It's probably, if you're a note taker, most of your advantage is just take a picture of it or something or scribble while I talk. There you go. I won't hold it against you if you do either of those things. Um, The first three commands that Paul gives are all in verse 9. And they're these general statements. Love genuinely. Hate evil. Hold fast to good. Those are just overarching. Let your love be genuine. Have a hatred for what is evil or what is contrary to God. And hold fast to what is good. And then he drills down a little bit further and he gives some commands to them as a church. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then he says to be zealous and fervent in their service to the Lord. Paul's writing to a church, a group of believers in Rome. And he says, do these things as a church. Love one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
serve zealously. And then he drills down a little bit further and he says, in a specific situation, in the context of challenge or persecution, here's what you should do. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. In one specific context in life, here's what it looks like to be a Christian. And then from verse 13 down to verse 20, Paul just kind of rapid fire gives nine commands. Give freely to those in need. Be hospitable. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have unity with one another. Don't be too proud to associate with anyone. Live at peace with all people and do not seek revenge. Those are how you interact with anyone, not just someone who's a believer, but anybody. And then he gives this final encouragement in verse 21 to overcome evil with good. That's one heck of a list. What does it look like to live in response to Jesus? What is the explanation of this Savior who has come? Well, it looks like all of that and more if you were to read other New Testament epistles. And if you came to the Bible as a self-help book and you looked at that list, you would be overwhelmed by where to even begin. If you came to the Bible as a self-help book, maybe you would be tempted to read this list and think to yourself, okay, where do I start? I think I could maybe be more giving. This tells me to be generous. I think I could be more generous. So you know what I'll do? That's what I'll do. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna find a way to give a little bit more financially. And maybe you would try that for a few days or for a few months, but at some point you would feel like some other area in your life now needs attention. And so you would, you would slide the giving, the generosity thing over to the side and you would pick up something new. I should probably pray more. I should be constant in prayer. So now I can't focus on the giving thing anymore. I need to focus on the prayer thing. And maybe you took like a step forward in your generosity, but now that you shift your focus, inevitably what's going to happen? The generosity is going to go back to neutral, if you will, back to where it began. And so if the Bible is a self-help book, where would you even start? If this is just one chunk of verses that tell a Christian how they're supposed to live, how would you take all of Scripture and say, okay, self, we need a lot of help, and that must be what the Bible's about. How would you even know where to begin? There's got to be a different lens by which we read Scripture, particularly these kinds of commands. Paul actually gives it to us. By the time you get into the middle of Romans chapter 12, Paul has been spending 11 and a half chapters unfolding the lens by which we should look at this. And so he recaps it for us in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you'll flip back or look up above where we were. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your translation might say, therefore, in view of God's mercy, Offer your lives. It might say something in that realm. That is the lens by which we look at the commands of Scripture in view of God's mercy. Through the lens of the mercy of God made manifest in the person and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, 
one of the things that should happen when we read a list like Romans 12, 9 to 21 is that we have two immediate thoughts. Number one, I cannot possibly do that. Number two, Jesus did that perfectly. When we come up on the commands of Scripture, those should be the two things that jump to the forefront of our minds and kind of leap out of our hearts. If you were to just take all the rest of, this, of Scripture away, and I gave you Romans 12, 9 to 21, and I said, you do these things, and you can have eternity with God. All you have to do is that list. I don't think I'm the only one that would look at that list and say, I have no hope. I have no chance of eternity with God. I simply cannot do that. I could maybe do it partially. I could possibly do one or two of them. I could not have any chance of living out this entire list. The beauty of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, the grace of the gospel is that you don't have to because Jesus did. He didn't just behave them perfectly. He embodied them fully. Our first step when we come to lists of commands in the New Testament and throughout Scripture should be twofold. Number one, praise God for His mercy in saving us from our sin. In view of God's mercy, thank you, God, that you have saved me from the fact that I cannot do that. And then the second is to treasure the perfection of Christ. So let's go back to the giving example. If you come to the Bible as a self-help book and you say, I should give more, so you just try to start giving. In view of God's mercy, we see that God has been unfathomably generous to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the application of the gospel into that area of your life is that you don't have to cling to your stuff as the means to be saved. Faith in Jesus is the means by which you're saved, which means that you can be radically generous with what you have. There's a difference there. What we need to do is kind of separate the lies and the half-truths from the truth when it comes to being obedient to the commands of Scripture. So that's what I want to do with the remaining time that we have. And there are four of these. The first one is that we need to think about the commands of Scripture in the right order. And the order matters immensely. And it's this. You do not live out the commands of Scripture in order to be saved. You live them out because you have been saved. If you make it your goal to simply live out the commands of Scripture without doing so from a saved heart, you're going to painfully discover that you cannot do it. You can't do it in full. You also can't even really do it in part. The nature of sin within you won't allow you to do it. In fact, what Paul says throughout Romans is that the law, the commands of Scripture, were given to make sin apparent, not to make you righteous. The laws and the commands of Scripture were drawn to point you to your need for a Savior, not to act as the means by which you save yourself. You live out the commands of Scripture because you have been saved, not in order to be saved. There's something inherent within all of us, because we're human, that says that I want to be the ultimate controller of whatever happens to me. And so that could be in your career, it could be in your family, it could be in your schooling, it could be in whatever. We do this to salvation too. And even if you sit here this morning and you say to yourself, I know, I know deep in my heart that Jesus is the only means by which I'm saved. At times, there's still something that creeps in that says, 
but maybe that's like 99.5% of the case. And what God really needs is my 5% contribution. Then I'll be saved. What he really needs is my 5% really good behavior over the course of my life. And then I'll finally be acceptable in his sight. And we think that we need to make that sort of contribution. But by adding something to the gospel, we've nullified it. You're saved by grace and grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. You cannot add to it. You cannot subtract from it. You obey the commands of Scripture because you've been saved in view of God's mercy, not in order to earn your salvation. Then the next thing is that we need to make sure we keep the right audience in mind, and that's that the commands of God are for the people of God. The commands of God are for the people of God. If the only people who have the motivation to live out these kinds of commands are those who have been saved, then we simply cannot expect that all the people in all of the world would obey Scripture. That doesn't make sense, right? There will come a day when everyone will live in perfect obedience to Scripture, but that's going to be in eternity after Jesus has come back and put a full and final end to the presence of sin. And everyone who's placed their faith in Him spends eternity in the presence of the Lord where sin is no longer there. Until that day... There are going to be people who have no relationship with God and therefore have no reason whatsoever to live in accordance with his standard. None. There's, in fact, in their mind, it would harm them to do so. It would harm their chances in relationships. It would harm their chances in the workplace. It would harm their chances as a parent. It would harm their chances fill in the blank. I believe very, very firmly that part of what embitters people toward Christianity in our world today is that they feel as though Christians want them to live by our standards before they know our Savior. And that's backwards. That's backwards. The world doesn't need a thorough explanation of proper Christian living until it has a thorough understanding and acceptance of the gospel. The people around us who haven't placed their faith in Jesus need to know Christ before they're told how to live like Christ. It's not the standard of living that has any power in the life of an individual. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the power of grace and of mercy. And what people need is not a New Testament list of laws that might make them acceptable in God's sight. What they need is the New Testament beauty of the gospel, of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what enables a person to be transformed. The gospel doesn't say, transform yourself by doing this list, and then you'll be right in God's sight. It says you have been transformed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now continue being transformed by the mercy and the grace of God. When we see evidence of brokenness in lives of the unsaved people around us, it should not create in us a longing to, create, to correct their behavior. That shouldn't be our knee-jerk response. It should create in us a longing to share with them the truth of a loving and a merciful Savior. Broken people doing broken things should not make us angry. It should break our heart. Broken people doing broken things are evidence of the need for a Savior. And we don't have this broken heart that longs for them to 
have a gospel explanation because we feel like we're somehow better than them, but in a, I just truly long to share with you the freedom and grace of Jesus Christ. God made flesh. We should long to see people be transformed by the truth of the gospel, not merely to see their behavior modified so that it doesn't offend our sensibilities. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible had a note on this section that I thought was really succinct and and gave a great explanation. It says this, The gospel of grace transforms us from the inside out. Changed at a heart level, we live differently. We cannot simply act a certain way in order to become changed at a heart level. If the heart is not right with God, no ritual will supply the true righteousness He requires. We obey because we have been saved, which means the commands of God are for the people of God. We need to have the right order and the right audience, but we also need to keep in mind the right power. You do not live out the commands of Scripture by your own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. A self-help book would say, do these things and you'll be a better person. The Bible says you are broken fundamentally. God has saved you in Jesus Christ, and he's given you the power to walk in fullness of life with him. It's a partnership. I've mentioned that before. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit in partnership with our own effort. If your sanctification is entirely about your own effort, it probably isn't going very well. You're probably regularly frustrated by the fact that your strategies and methods and new habits simply cannot overcome the reality of sin inside your heart. But at the same time, if your sanctification is entirely about sitting on your couch and waiting for God to almost magically change you in all ways, it probably isn't going well either. In fact, you could probably sit on that couch until the day you die and wrestle with a lot of the same temptations and a lot of the same brokenness in your own heart. Can God miraculously remove issues of sin from some people's life? Yes, but even when he does that, you're going to have to walk it out. You're going to have to live in light of that now. It's a joint action. In view of God's mercy, you have been saved. And in view of his mercy, in partnership with him, you will be sanctified. Has anybody seen the movie Hitch? Hitch is Will Smith's greatest movie. It's it's Will Smith as uh, a guy named Alex Hitchens and then Kevin James as a guy named uh, Albert Brenneman. And Albert Brenneman is hopelessly in love with this uh, superstar named Allegra Cole. And Alex Hitchens, Will Smith, is explaining to uh, Albert Brenneman how to navigate the first kiss in their relationship. And he explains that Albert needs to go 90% of the way there and wait for Allegra to go the final 10%. Make sense? This is a stretch of an analogy, but go with me. (laughs) I don't know what the exact percentages are. I don't think it's worth speculating over the exact percentages. But your process of sanctification, your ability to obey the commands of Scripture in view of God's mercy is like 99% the Holy Spirit's power inside of you and 1% you coming the rest of the way. You're going to have to give something there. It is the Holy Spirit inside you that transforms you into the image of Jesus Christ. But it does require something of you. In fact, 
in Romans 2 where we're told to be transformed. That Greek word for transform is used like eight times in the New Testament, and it's always passive. Be transformed. Every time. It's never that you are the acting agent that transforms yourself. It's always that you are acted upon and the transformation happens inside of you. The right power is that the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. And then finally, we obey the commands of Scripture with the right result in mind. And that's that you do not live out the commands of Scripture to attract attention to yourself. You live them out to draw attention to the gospel. Ultimately, your sanctification is not about living your best life now. Although, if you are living in accordance with Scripture, your best life now is a great side effect. Your relationships will function smoother. Your conscience will be less weighed down. right? But even the times where you fall short, you know that you fall squarely upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the grace that's available there. Your sanctification is about offering up the entirety of your life in view of God's mercy as a picture of the gospel to the rest of the world. The right order, salvation first, then obedience. The right audience, that those commands are for God's people. The right power, it's the Holy Spirit that enables you to be obedient. And the right result is a picture of the gospel to the world around us. Romans 12, 9 to 21, and other lists like it in the New Testament are not things that we just kind of beat ourselves over the head with. We don't come up on the commands of the New Testament or the commands of all of Scripture and say to ourselves, gosh, if my love could only be more genuine, be more genuine, be more genuine, be more genuine. No, they're more of a diagnostic test that force us to look into the mirror and say, how am I doing here? How's my transformation coming? What does the mirror show? What is scripture revealing about the reality of my heart and who I am? And first and foremost, it should force us to ask the question, have I placed my faith in Jesus Christ? You can't live in view of God's mercy until you've experienced it for the very first time. That is step one. And if you have and you are in relationship with Jesus, then a list like Romans 12, 9 to 21 is a great indicator of how you should be praying. Holy Spirit, Jesus, help me to live in view of God's mercy in fill-in-the-blank way. Help me to be more patient in my difficult circumstances. Holy Spirit, would you work within me to weep with those who weep, to not be prideful in relationships with people who are of lower estate than I am? Would you just rid that sort of classification from my heart at all, God? Would you help me, Holy Spirit, to not want to seek revenge in this situation? When you come to Scripture, it will shine a bright light on who you are. More than that, it will shine a bright light on who God is and what He has done for you in Jesus Christ. And our deepest, most entrenched areas of sin are the clearest evidence that we still need to press the gospel deeper into our hearts. The sin that remains in your life doesn't need behavior modification. It needs gospel transformation. And it's by the beauty and the warmth of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're not only motivated but empowered to live out the commands of Scripture. Obedience to the commands of Scripture is rooted in a joyful understanding and acceptance of the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ. The transformation that the New Testament talks about comes inside out, not outside in fact, Jesus spent the vast majority of his public ministry 
criticizing the Pharisees because they thought that outside in was the means by which a person was made righteous before the Lord. It's inside out. We are saved by the good news of Jesus Christ on the cross and we are sanctified by the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're going to end our time this morning in worship. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll stand up and sing together. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come and peer into your word, God, to see you as you reveal yourself, to see ourselves as you lay out in scripture, God. My prayer is that we would be motivated to live obedient lives in view of your mercy, God, that we would see our sanctification in light of the gospel. Lord, if there are people here who've not ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ, would they see your mercy clearly for the very first time today? And God, for those who are living in relationship with you, God, help us to fight against that part of our heart that longs to contribute to our salvation or that thinks that the Bible is a means by which we have laid out for us all the ways in which we need to work harder in order to be right in your sight. God, help us to just grasp the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins, an act of grace and mercy on your part, and that we're saved by faith in that truth, and that we're sanctified by that very same truth. It's one and the same, Lord. Help our hearts to grasp that fully this morning and help us to walk in freedom and the light of that going forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.